Welcome to the Impact 360 Institute podcast, where our goal is to explore biblical worldview and servant leadership to equip you for everyday influence. Here's your host, author and director of cultural engagement, Jonathan Morrow. Welcome to our conversation today. I have Dr. Tony Evans here with us, which I'm so excited about. Uh, really been a hero of mine. I've read so many of your works, and, and one of the ones that's impacted me the most is your book, Oneness Embraced. And it's so important for today and, and kind of what we're encountering. I know you've had the opportunity to be with our students a little bit, teaching them, which we're so grateful for. Uh, so first, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. Delighted. Great experience. Well, it's great. So, you know, obviously there's a lot going on in our culture right now. There's a lot of division and confusion. Maybe just kind of speak to that a little bit of just kind of describing kind of where we're at. Well, we're at each other's throats. That's where we're at. Unfortunately, uh, what we've allowed is the um, the wrong voices to be highlighting the division. There is a division. There is a bad history in this country. But without a proper view of how to reconcile them, then we will stay as tribal people. And that means we will retreat from each other rather than reconcile with one another. Now, some of that has been a history of inequity, a history of brutality, a history of rejection, isolation. On the other side, you have to have forgiveness. You know, there's no justice, no peace, but no forgiveness, no peace either. So, so you have to have both. And you have to live in the windshield and not in the rearview mirror. Because if you live in the rearview mirror, that can never go away. It's always embedded there. So if you live there and hang out there, at the same time, we must address inequities that are in the present. But we've got to address them biblically and spiritually as the foundation. Because if we don't, then we're left up to he said, she said, what we think rather than what God says. So uh, history that have not been fully addressed, uh, the need to uh, not allow the wrong voices to be giving us the mandates for how we ought to function. Uh, and that means the church has to step forward and give spiritual guidance to a cultural calamity. Yeah, absolutely. And that's so important. And I know, I know being biblically centered is so important to you, your ministry, your life, as is ours here at Impact 360. Talk a little bit about kind of, I know one of the passages you, you've walked through is, is 2 Chronicles 15, 3, and, and kind of maybe that explains a little bit of how we may have got here, um, perhaps, but unpack a little bit of that. Yeah, well, 2 Chronicles 15 talks about the fact that there was no peace in the land. And it says the reason there was no peace was because the true God had been abandoned. Uh, that religion hadn't been abandoned, but the true God. People want God's name without God's policies and practices and principles. And the reason the true God had been abandoned is because the pulpits had failed. It says no teaching priest. So the pulpits had no longer, were no longer giving God's standard to the people. And a mist in the pulpit will inevitably become a fog in the pew. People don't know what to believe, what to think, how to act, how to react. Then it says there was no law. People made up their own rules. And that's what's happening today. The wrong God, poor spiritual leadership, lawlessness abounds and is the net result. And that leads to the divine abandonment of God, that God is no longer active in bringing healing because he's been rejected. And when that rejection happens with his people, we are the safe spot supposed to be in Katrina. Uh, it was a bad storm, but the levees broke. And when the levees broke, it became a, a storm, became a flood. The levee is the church. The church is broken. 
we're being flooded with division and classism, culturalism, racism that is overwhelming us. We are being flooded because the levees are broke. We got to get those levees fixed if we want to heal our communities. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I remember one thing that stuck out to me. You were talking about how you know we could have we could have ended the American slave trade with one in one day. Talk about like even just kind of that failure to do that. Like right. what would that look like? Well, you know, uh, Genesis, uh, excuse me, Exodus twenty-one sixteen says that uh, anything predicated on kidnapping was worthy of death. Slave trade was tied to kidnapping. If, if that would have been taught and understood, the American form of slavery would have ended. But because the church accepted what the culture was offering in the name of economic gain, then it perpetuated an evil system of American apartheid and slavery that did not get properly addressed. So as a result, a division was embedded in the culture that would become a generational evil that uh, we're still recovering from or trying to recover from. Yeah, and that's honestly failure to speak what God had said. Absolutely. We, we spoke conveniently and culturally, but not biblically and righteously and justly. And I know that temptation falls to us all in every generation, right? There's always going to be pressure points. There's always going to be easy things to say and hard things to say, and, and our, we've got to say all of it. Well, the Bible is clear in uh, Ephesians 4, we have to speak the truth with love. That is, we don't dumb down what God says, but we do it in a way that lets people know we care. And if you if you love without truth, then you, you wind up with empty sentimentalism. Uh, but if you uh, have truth without love, then you come up with cold orthodoxy. And you need an orthodoxy that touches the heart while it informs the head. Absolutely. One of the things that you said that stuck out to me is, you know, we don't need to be colorblind, but we also don't need to be blinded by color. Unpack what you mean by that. Well, God is not colorblind. We see in eternity, God, there are racial differences. In Revelation 5, 9 and Revelation 7, 9, the diversity was visual to the apostle John. So God is not colorblind, but he doesn't let color rule. He's not blinded by color. What we have done is we've become blinded by color. We've let color dictate policy, color dictate relationships, color dictate uh, who we associate with, who we don't associate with, how we view systems. So it has taken a position of idolatry that God deems evil. Wow. Yeah, you know, and so I've also heard you talk about this, but I, I think it's so helpful. You said because the theology is wrong, the sociology is then wrong. Absolutely. That's a really important idea. Spend some time to kind of unpack that a little bit. Well, you know, our social structures, which inform how we live, how we relate to people, has to be grounded in something that is stable and unchangeable. And that means it must be grounded in the person of God and the imago Dei, the image of God that is residing in every human being. So that automatically means the right to life, but also the right to dignity. And when that is lost, then you come up with sociological solutions that are ever learning and never coming into the knowledge of the truth because they're not based on a fixed standard. They're based on human uh, perspectives that will also always be limited and shifty. So we need to return to a bibliocentric definition of God as it relates to the definition of man and then apply that in the church and then through the church, making it visual to the culture. Absolutely. One of the important distinctions I think that you helpfully make is the difference between unity on the one hand and uniformity on the other. Unpack what, what are we aiming at around unity and kind of give some flesh to that concept. 
Well, unity means oneness of purpose, not sameness of persons. It's not uniformity. God is the God of diversity. And since God is the God of diversity, diversity is a good thing. But he never wants diversity to move people away from his kingdom purpose. And his kingdom purpose is that all things in all life would reflect him in all areas. And so that reflection of God, that mirroring of God, which is the image that we bear because it's God's image, we are to mirror him in all of life and help each other to do that. Well, obviously that starts with God's people because we start with God. But the reality is even non-Christians can benefit from the Imago Dei, from the image of God, simply because God's character is true in the world whether a person believes in him or not. And that's why you can have people with high values and high morals because they're still operating on a biblical principle even though they don't, may not have a personal relationship. Absolutely. And so, you know, living in this cultural moment that we're in, defining our terms is so important. And all the, there's so many buzzwords, right? And that's part of the challenge. Mm -hmm. So people hear diversity. Is there, a, like, how do people distinguish between a, a good God-centered biblical diversity and a diversity which doesn't speak to what God says. Like how to help us with that a little bit. Well, God wants to define our humanity and it can be expressed differently. But what we are expressing is him in our speech, in our songs, in our relationships. We are expressing him but through the uniquenesses of our own personalities. You know, the writers of the Bible were different people. You can see in their writings, they spoke differently. They communicated differently. Peter says Paul was hard to understand. You know, he was so theologically deep because he was a theologian. So, so we, 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 we express it differently like the word expresses it differently, but they are still expressing truth. And truth is an absolute standard by which reality is measured. And so if you're communicating truth, and you're communicating it in a different mechanism or voice, but it's the same truth. You have diversity of expression while unanimity in uh, what is being expressed. And that's key. That, that's back to that important thing you mentioned in terms of theology coming before sociology and all these other isms and terms that get kind of get legs and then they run and you're like, well, actually, that's not what we meant or that's not what the Bible teaches, but this is what we're after. And it's so important. You know, talk about the important distinction you make between in terms of the gospel as the content versus the scope because that that that's a game changer if we get to because i think people are talking past each other on this right so so help us here well the gospel's content is narrow it's faith in the finished work of jesus christ for the forgiveness of sins and the free gift of eternal life but the bible also uses the word for gospel to talk about its broad influence and impact paul had to challenge peter because he says, you did not act in concert with the truth of the gospel. And he was talking about racial relationships in um, Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 to 20. He says, he, but he says, but Peter was already a Christian. He'd already accepted Christ, but he was not operating with the truth of the gospel, which has to do also with the unity of the body. And since the unity of the body is the gospel truth, the scope of the gospel must be applied broadly, even though you must believe it personally. Absolutely. And that's so, so vital um, to keep those distinctives, but then also to flesh it out. And, and in some ways, um, I know recently you've, you've published a book called Kingdom Race Theology, kind of a, that's greater than, you know, critical race theory is KRT versus CRT. In that Absolutely. Regard. Unpack what, what were you trying to do with kind of reframing that whole conversation and, and elevate and well, centralize? Well, CRT is a theory 
about law and how law has embedded itself in structures and, and those structures where it is embedded still has negative repercussions for minorities. That in itself is not bad. The problem is it's got wedded to a whole bunch of other things, so now everything is CRT. And so everybody's confused and everybody's fighting. So really, rather than spending all of our time debating that and debating a theory, why don't we come back to a biblical theology, which means God has spoken. We have a definitive word on the subject. So I'm trying to pull people back to what we call kingdom race theology. What is God's definitive word on race? Not what is the theory that men are debating. And so we're calling God, and when we talk about kingdom race theology, we're talking about the recognition of divine diversity as we place ourselves in unity under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Yeah, and that's so vital because I know there's a lot of, because a lot of ink is being spilled digitally and otherwise on defining everything, and that, there's a place for that, but if we spend all our time there, we're not moving towards anything that's or right. forward that's towards right. anything. That's right. And that's why I love so much about that idea on kingdom race theology. What does it look like, you know, to talk about, I know you've talked about kind of the emphasizing both righteousness and justice, mm -hmm. right? And, right? and kind of unpack why that matters and maybe kind of how people come to that equation or different right. backgrounds and, you know, and emphases and things like that. Well, in the Bible, righteousness and justice are like I call twin towers, the Siamese twins that join at the hip. From God's throne, Psalm 89, 14, from God's throne comes righteousness and justice. Abraham was to raise his sons, Genesis 18, 19, and righteousness and justice. All through the scripture, those two are partnered together. Righteousness has to do with our right standing and right walk before God. Justice has to do with how we treat and relate to others in a fair and equitable manner. And we are to do both at the same time. We're to love God and treat our neighbor right. So both of those are to happen simultaneously. What we've wound up with, unfortunately, in the culture is one group of Christians emphasizing righteousness, another group of Christians emphasizing justice, as though these two can be separated or ought to be separated. There ought to be a partnership between the two. Now, sometimes you may emphasize one more than the other, but they shouldn't be far from one another. They should be very locatable and because they're operating in the same vicinity because God is a God of both and he demands and expects both to be operating. So we should fight for the life of the unborn in the womb, but for the dignity of people to the tomb. And both of those should be simultaneously argued, fought for, and not be a point of division where one is accusing the other of not being sensitive when it's a whole life issue, not a term issue. So uh, uh, it's it's having them both move simultaneously. Absolutely. And so what? So in light of that, and I love the challenge you gave to our students and honestly to all of us, what does a, a, a kingdom disciple look like? Kind of paint a picture, especially for the next generation, but for everybody, everybody, but especially those who are growing up in this culture of division where tribalism is the air that everybody breathes. What does it look like to be a kingdom-minded disciple? The kingdom disciple is a full-time, visible, verbal follower of Jesus Christ. It is where they've submitted not only to Christ as Savior, but yield to Him as Lord, where He has the final say-so over everything in their lives, where there's no division between secular and sacred. Jesus says all authority has been given to Him, and therefore we don't get to piggyback on His authority unless we are placing ourselves under that authority, and that's what discipleship seeks to do. That involves evangelism, bringing people into the kingdom. It involves development, making people useful for the kingdom. And then it involves uh, uh, educating them in the meaning of what it means to live out 
kingdom values in a secular society. When people decide to do that and make Christ their identity, point of reference for all of life, then that authority is attached to them and to his church. Our problem today is we have plenty of Christians, but we don't have enough kingdom reps, kingdom representatives who have been discipled into all of life being under divine authority. And that's so important and it plays with it. And, and you kind of spend some time unpacking the importance of even nouns and adjectives when it comes to our identity. Mm-hmm. Can you kind of share a little bit of how you were talking about that? Because yeah. I think it's a really important thing for all of us to hear. Well, I said it's technically incorrect to say if somebody is a black Christian or white Christian, because then you make then black and white is an adjective. Christian is a noun. The job of the adjective is to modify the noun. So Christian must become whatever the adjective says it is. Christianity must be in the adjectival position. Your humanity must be in the noun position. So if anything changes, it's the noun of your humanity and not the adjective of your faith. Yeah, no, that's huge. And, and just the clarity to say that, because even saying that out loud, people are like, they won't even respond. That's a, so important for us all to get, and, and so, so important. One of the things I love about uh, your work and Oneness Embraced and, and the book you've written there is you really, not, not only do you kind of paint a picture of how we got here and theologically what, what, what is true and everything else, but you also actually put forth what do we need to do? Because a lot of times these conversations are like, okay, I get it. I agree. Mm-hmm. What do we need to do? And I know you've talked about it, it's like, you know, maybe from the perspective of a white Christian, not to get back to our adjective thing, but or a black Christian <laughs> in the church, you. but like, you know, people like practically tell me like, mm-hmm. not in the secular sense of where you do the work to earn the favor, to get the salvation that the secular mm-hmm. culture offers. Not We're not playing that game, but like, how do we make this better? How do we move forward yeah. towards reconciliation and unity? Well, individually, we have to make some decisions. We have to decide, if you're a Christian, that, that Christ has the last say-so, okay? It means taking the initiative to recognize the sin of racism. It is a sin. And you don't skip that. You don't, you don't deny its, its reality. Learn about the history. Learn about why, how, what, what this sin is and what it has done, because it has brought about a lot of damage. At the same time, you don't accept false guilt. You don't be made guilty over something that you didn't do uh, just because, you know, it, it exists. But at the same time, you work toward reconciliation. That's getting to know people who are different than you, getting your families exposed to people who are different than you, like Martin Luther King said, because their character, you know, that, that uh, trumps their color. Uh, it means that you are um, exposing yourself. And I talk about the, uh, the African-American Museum in Washington. You know, people will go to the Museum of the Bible, but they need to go to the African-American Museum because it really shows the history of the black community, but it does it by highlighting the religious heritage there. So there's a lot to learn in that context. So there needs to be that learning side. It means to, when you see evil, you speak truth in that context. You don't just ignore the evil of illegitimate disparity. And to your degree, you try to alleviate it in your friends, in your family. You train those who you have influence over in how we should relate to people properly. So individually, African-Americans, for example, cannot operate on a victim's mentality. You cannot live in the past, although you should learn from the past. And uh, and uh, you should fight for our families. Our families are falling apart, and that is a, the foundation for society. So you have to do that. We have to have the talk with our kids, but not just about police brutality, but about 
responsibility and education and uh, spirituality. Um, we should have, we should belong to churches that emphasize justice as much as they do righteousness so that there is the balance of the Twin Towers. Um, and so those individuals, but then there's that collective impact. Uh, God will show his presence to the degree of our unity. He will resist showing his presence to the degree of our disunity. So if we can get churches to be unified and have an impact and then to connect with other churches. So we have this three-point plan through our national ministry, the urban alternative of uh, churches in every community, having an annual solemn assembly, speaking with one voice about the issues that face that community from a biblical frame of reference, and then doing good works, Matthew 5, 16, so that people can see the impact we are making, adopt every school, adopt the police precinct. You know, you can do things that is the same thing, even though each one of you is doing it differently, but it becomes a visual to the verbal that we proclaim. And that's massive. And I know you've been doing this for years. Talk about some of the effects when you've seen when you've seen Christians doing that, like what, mm -hmm. what have you seen? Like yeah. paint a positive, like the energy, the, like the excitement, or like what, what happens when that stuff begins to happen? Well, when Ferguson broke out and um, they called us in and we got a hundred churches together and they decided to be unified for the good of the city, things got calm, things got, people were relating, getting to know people who were different than them because the crisis created an opportunity. See, we have to see as bad as things are, there's an opportunity in the midst of this chaos because the secular world doesn't have solutions. It just has complaints. We have solutions, but that solution will only be seen when we're unified and people can see things are being made better by the practice and the presence of God's people. And that's so important. Well, maybe, maybe a last word. If you were going to kind of speak and, and speak to the next generation, Gen Z and maybe Gen Alpha that comes after them, give them some, some words of, of, of the opportunity before them, some encouragement, maybe speak to them for a minute. Well, I want to let them all know that uh, you've been called to the kingdom for such a time as this. What we need is a generation of young people who are unashamedly Christian, but who are also passionate for justice in society. They want people to love God, serve God, walk with God, but they also want people, people's dignity to be maintained. That can be through your involvement in a mission, a ministry, or a church that is doing good works of care and sensitivity and justice. That is because you are, you are doing, we have these, uh, we call acts of kindness cards, where we just encourage people to find somebody every week at least to do some kind act for, then pray for them, then share the gospel with them. Because you can do that just as you move about in, in, in your daily lives. So it doesn't have to be hard or complicated, it just has to be regular and sincere. I love that, I love that. Well, Dr. Evans, just so appreciate you, Thank your you. faithfulness, your ministry, um, your book, Oneness Embraced, and so many others, so many other resources. Thank you for being just a clear voice in the midst of this kind of cultural chaos in a lot of ways that calls people back to, to scripture and the gospel, both in content and scope, and to be that kingdom disciple. So thank you for-, for Thank you, God bless you. For more information about our on-campus worldview and leadership experiences for students and our accessible online courses like Explore Truth and Explore the Resurrection, visit impact360.org. Impact 360 Institute. Know. Be. Live.